Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. You've been listening to Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden making his pitch to voters in battleground state Wisconsin, focusing on the deadly pandemic, which has killed almost 200,000 people, not to mention jobs as the economy continues to suffer. The Dow closing just now down hundreds of points. Biden today largely ignoring the new battle on the horizon, the vacant seat on the Supreme Court with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell saying on the Senate floor just moments ago that President Trump's pick will get a vote this year. CNN's Arlette Signs is live outside the Biden speech in Manitowoc, uh, Wisconsin. And Arlette, that's a notable approach from Biden today, not talking about the Supreme Court vacancy, which he did talk about yesterday, but instead focusing on the health care and uh, economy arguments to voters in a battle- battleground state and focusing also, Arlette, on his number one focus as president will be uniting the country. Yeah, that's right, Jake. Joe Biden steered clear, stayed away from commenting on the Supreme Court vacancy and the fight that is playing out regarding that, and instead kept his focus squarely on the coronavirus pandemic and the economy. That is a message that Biden and his campaign has stressed for months and something that they plan to do going forward. He criticized the president's handling of the coronavirus, saying that he panicked, that he froze, and that the pandemic was too big for Donald Trump to handle. He also talked a little about health care. I'm told by aides that that is something that Biden will be pushing in the coming weeks with the Supreme Court vacancy, warning about how health care and pre-existing conditions are at risk under President Trump's administration. Now, Biden talked a little bit about how he insists that he will protect pre-existing conditions going forward, hoping that that's something that could play with voters, particularly as this coronavirus pandemic continues to grip the country. You saw Biden in that speech wearing a mask here in Wisconsin where cases have surged. Biden also trying to appeal to those voters who might have voted for Trump back in 2016, saying that Biden will work for them and unite the country. Jake. Very interesting. Arlette Signs in Wisconsin, a key battleground state for the 2020 presidential election. I want to bring in our chief political correspondent, Dana Bash. And Dana, Biden's approach today, uh, very middle of the road, saying he can work with Republicans and Democrats, talk about how he wants to bring the country together. He is clearly running... Uh, from the center, or at least attempting to. Absolutely. Uh, And the fact I noted, as you did, Jake, that he didn't even talk for a second about the Supreme Court fight. He really intentionally, clearly kept his eye on the ball. And that ball, from the campaign's point of view, is health care and about how the the president, despite what he said to voters in states like Wisconsin uh, four years ago, isn't looking out for the little little person. And what struck me was the wording, Jake, that uh, the former vice president used to the people who voted for Donald Trump, who had been uh, Democrats previously. I know you're frustrated. I know you don't feel that you are seen or heard. That will change with me. Uh, fewer than 23 thousand votes. That was the difference between Donald Trump and and Hillary Clinton uh, winning or losing in Wisconsin. And that's with, you know, nearly three million people voting. And so that is why Joe Biden is making a direct appeal to try to bring those traditionally Democratic voters back into the fold because he clearly feels and his campaign feels that he is the kind of Democratic messenger who can do that this year. All right, Dana Bass, thank you so much. Now to the battle over that Supreme Court vacancy. President Trump saying today he will announce his nominee this week, either Friday or Saturday, he says. 
to fill the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. The president also saying he has narrowed his choices down to five contenders. He has pledged to nominate a woman. CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell just declared Trump's pick will receive a vote on the Senate floor this year. President. President Trump says he'll announce his pick to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court by the end of the week. I think, in all due respect, we should wait till the services are over mm-hmm. for Justice Ginsburg. And uh, so we're looking probably at Friday or maybe Saturday. Trump telling Fox News that he's waiting out of respect for RBG before baselessly claiming that her dying wish to be replaced by the next president, which she dictated to her granddaughter, was concocted by Democrats. Well, I don't know that she said that or was that written out by Adam Schiff and Schumer. The president spent the weekend on the phone with staff, lawmakers and advisors as he narrowed down his list of finalists to several women. I'm looking at five, probably four, but I'm looking at five very seriously. On that list right now are Amy Coney Barrett, Allison Jones Rushing, Kate Todd and Barbara Lagoa, a Cuban-American judge from Florida that campaign officials believe could provide a political boost. Well, she's excellent. She's Hispanic. I don't know her. Uh, Florida. We love Florida. Trump making clear his desire to cement a 6-3 conservative majority on the court for generations to come. These are the smartest people. These are the smartest young people. You know, you like to go young because they're there for a long time. While it's not clear who he'll pick, it is clear that Trump wants to have his nominee confirmed before the November election. I think the vote, the final vote, should be taken, frankly, before the election. We have plenty of time for that. Waiting until Friday to announce his pick would give Trump 39 days to get his nominee confirmed. On average, Senate confirmations for Supreme Court justices take around 70 days. We should act quickly because we're going to have probably election things involved here, you know, because of of the uh, fake ballots that they'll be sending out. The president providing no proof that fraudulent ballots are being sent out. But there is new audio revealing comments he made to Bob Woodward about reshaping the courts and working with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to appoint conservative judges. He will absolutely ask me, please, let's get the judge approved instead of 10 ambassadors. Now, Jake, inside the White House, this process of selecting someone is largely being overseen by the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, in addition to the vice president, Mike Pence, and Jared Kushner, though the president is also hearing from a ton of outside voices as well. Just today, he spoke with the president of the Susan B. Anthony List, of course, an anti-abortion group, and you can bet he is going to hear a flood of advice over the next few days before he finally settles on who his nominee is going to be. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN's Abby Phillip and Ron Brownstein to talk about it. Abby, McConnell just said on the Senate floor that the president's nominee will get a vote this year. Now, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski have said McConnell should delay any action until we know who wins the presidency November 3rd. Do you think any additional Republicans will join those two, thus, theoretically at least, being able to block McConnell from proceeding to a vote? 
Well, I think it's a possibility. Uh, the list of people who could be in the company of Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski are pretty limited. Uh, you're talking about maybe three or four uh, other Republicans who might be open to it. Many haven't said where they stand. But I did think it was notable that McConnell said today, this nominee will get a vote this year. He did not say before the election. It is possible that McConnell is trying to feel out uh, the, se- the Senate Republicans that that, uh, that he represents effectively say, and saying to them, would you be open to this if we held a vote after the November election? Uh, that might be more likely to, to help him keep uh, keep, you know, the Republicans together. And I think that that might allow for a delay in this vote, but perhaps uh, give Democrats limited options to stop it altogether. And Ron McConnell also just argued that in the 70s, Justice Paul, John Paul Stevens was confirmed uh, in just 19 days. It, no one doubts that it is theoretically possible uh, to confirm somebody uh, from now uh, until Election Day, which is 43 days away. I, I guess the question is not whether they could, it's, it's whether they should. Right. And of course, the intervening uh, among the many intervening events was McConnell holding open a seat for the entire election year of 2016. And you hear Ted Cruz saying, well, we shouldn't have an evenly divided court uh, in an election year. Uh, didn't bother Ted Cruz or any of the other Republicans in 2016. Uh, look, they they probably will find the votes to do this. I mean, as Abby is saying, the universe of people beyond, and once you get to Mitt Romney at 50-50, uh, that next one gets very hard. Uh, but if they do do this in this very limited time frame, particularly if Republicans lose the Senate and lose the White House, uh, I think you're looking at kind of a crisis of legitimacy for the Supreme Court that you don't know exactly where it goes. This will be the third, if it's seated, the third Supreme Court justice chosen by a president who lost the popular vote and confirmed by a Republican Senate that represents less than half of the country when you assign half of each state's population. Each Senator George W. Bush, who lost the popular vote, named two others. Clarence Thomas, the last Republican on the other Republican on the court, was confirmed by a uh, by senators who represented less than less than half the country as well. And I don't know exactly where this goes, but if Democrats win the Senate, win the House, win the presidency uh, and have this new emerging majority centered on diverse America, I don't think they will stand kind of quiescently through the 2020s if this court knocks down their initiative starting, uh, you know, right after the election with the very real possibility, virtual certainty that the Affordable Care Act will will face uh, Mm. could be struck down uh, with all the implications of that for people with pre-existing conditions. Abby, uh, Mitch McConnell loves two things. Uh, One of them is confirming judges and justices. The other one is maintaining his majority. Uh, And he has a balancing act here because the question, of course, is uh, whether or not for some of the senators, Republican senators up for reelection, like Susan Collins, like Cory Gardner, uh, whether going against what Republicans did in 2016 when they said we should leave this up to uh, the voters in November, uh, whether that will turn off swing voters or independent voters. Um, I mean, this is uh, hypocritical for, for many of the senators. How much uh, do you think that calculation works in his favor in terms of uh, pushing this forward now? I think it is factoring in. I mean, the uh, the first rule of politics really is do no harm. Uh, It's really not clear what the politics of this situation is for a lot of lawmakers. You you will hear Republicans saying that 2018 was a referendum on the courts and that uh, they were given a a larger majority uh, because of the issue of the Supreme Court. But at the same time, uh, you have the the reason you have senators like Susan Collins uh, trying to uh, pull back from this idea of 
herself pushing a nomination through before uh, the November election is because I, I think she's trying to avoid riling up her opposition. The problem for many Republicans, however, is that uh, for Republic, the Republican base, this is such a motivating issue. It's a core issue for them. Uh, if you're a Lindsey Graham and you're in a tough race right now in South Carolina, you don't want to uh, pull the rug out from under you by alienating the president's supporters. So it's really difficult to navigate this, uh, given the, the geography of the Senate map right now is so diverse. These uh, senators who are up are in a, a lot of varying positions. So it might be in McConnell's interest to try to do as little as possible before the election and then act afterwards. What do you think, Ron? I mean, I, I've heard it uh, explained from Democrats and Republicans alike that this probably hurts Susan Collins and Cory Gardner in Colorado probably helps Mick Sally in Arizona and Tom Tillis in North Carolina uh, because it brings Republicans back into the fold. And then you heard uh, Abby obviously talking about uh, the people like Lindsey Graham uh, really needing to have Republicans uh, backing him in, in, a, in what could be a tough election. Uh, I, I, yes, I, I think it has differential impact in different places. I think obviously Gardner and Collins are the most clearly hurt. I mean, those are states where you have a relatively small uh, evangelical population, a lot of suburban uh, college-educated voters, and a clear pro-choice majority. I think Arizona, on balance, even if it helps McSally consolidate Republicans, I think it's a problem for her because that's another state with a clear pro-choice uh, majority. But even if Democrats win those three, they've got to win one more. And those next states, the politics are much more equivocal, whether it's North Carolina, Georgia, Iowa, South Carolina, Texas, Kansas, any, Montana, any of those, I think it is not as clear, uh, you know, what, how this will play out. I will say that it may matter a great deal, Jake, what the debate is ultimately about. If it's about abortion, primarily in states like North Carolina, Iowa, Georgia, that is a jump ball. If it's about protecting people with pre-existing conditions, I think that is a very different politics. And I think that's why you're going to see Biden in particular really hammer at this because the, uh, you know, at, at this point, the, the virtual certainty is that the court will send this uh, a lawsuit back to the district court, which will come back with a ruling throwing out the entire ACA. And sometimes in 2021, this new justice may get to decide whether the ACA and its protections for people with pre-existing conditions uh, continue. And I think that is ground on which a Teresa Greenfield in Iowa or a, a Cal Cunningham in North Carolina is going to be much more comfortable fighting than on the question of whether abortion should remain legal. Yeah, you heard Joe Biden talking about uh, Obamacare. Uh, emphasizing that. Uh, Ron Brownstein, Abby Phillip, thanks to both of you. I'm old enough to remember when Republican senators like Lindsey Graham said February was too close to the election to vote in a new Supreme Court justice. When a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination. So what's really changed with the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, plus after posting new guidance warning that coronavirus particles can float in the air. The CDC took that guidance down today, what the agency is now saying about how the virus spreads. Stay with us. In our Healthly Today Any Moment, we're going to hit the grim milestone of 200,000 people in the United States killed by the coronavirus. 200,000, the highest death toll in the world by far, according to official numbers, that's basically the equivalent of the entire population of Salt Lake City, just gone. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports, this tragic and preventable milestone approaches as the president insists the U.S. has rounded a corner on the pandemic despite a surge in new cases. 
Very soon we will pass 200,000 people killed by COVID-19 in America, more than double what the president predicted in the spring. We may be at 300,000 by New Year's. This is not necessary. This is not deaths that need to happen. We need a national strategy to avoid this from happening. We're rounding the corner and we've done a phenomenal job. No and no. COVID-19 cases are in fact on the rise. There's the upturn on the graph. We're averaging more than 40,000 new cases a day again. And we're worried that it's only going to continue. This is the beginning of, of our second wave. Texas went from midsummer hotspot to curve crusher, but now an upturn. Here we go, week two. Fewer than 22,000 people just attended the Cowboys season opener, but excitement trampled all over social distancing. Why are numbers now rising in more than half of states? Could be Labor Day mingling, colleges going back, people moving indoors as the outdoors gets chilly. We may be in for a very apocalyptic fall, I'm, I'm sorry to say. The president is still fighting the general scientific consensus, says maybe Pfizer will have a viable vaccine very, very soon. I would say that you'll have it uh, long before the end of the year, maybe, maybe by the end of October. Meanwhile, the FDA, which would approve any vaccine and also the CDC, now has to run everything through the HHS. The press release reads, in part, no regulation issues from any part of HHS without the approval of the secretary and the White House. It implies that HHS is going to be serving a censorship function. Our science, our approvals have never had to go through HHS in order to get released to the general public. Friday, the CDC finally confirmed that COVID particles can float in the air, makes this virus even more infectious. Today... The CDC took that guidance down, claiming a draft version of proposed changes to these recommendations was posted in error to the agency's official website. The fact that they retracted this, even though this is common scientific knowledge at this point, one has to wonder what's behind it. Was there political pressure? Now, one uh, federal official now tells CNN that this was all the CDC's doing. It was a mistake. It was posted before the guideline was properly reviewed. Somebody hit the button and shouldn't have, is what we're told. Currently, we're told it's being revised. Unclear when the guidance will be reposted. And, Jake, it's going to be interesting to see if it's any different when it is reposted. All right. Nick Watt, thank you so much. Let's bring in the dean of Brown University Medical School, uh, Brown University School of Public Health, rather, Dr. Ashish Jha. Uh, Dr. Jha, thanks for joining us. So we're about to cross the 200,000-person death toll uh, any moment now. Could this grim toll have been prevented? Jake, thank you for having me on. Uh, unfortunately, the answer is yes. Uh, if we had done what the president knew was the right stuff to do back in February, if we had acted on that information, uh, I think a vast majority of people who have died, uh, they would have still be alive today. So it is, in fact, a, a double tragedy, not just so many lives lost, but that it was so much of it was preventable. And we were going forward. You heard in that piece the predictions of another 100,000 dead by the end of the year. Um, president Trump is going to be holding two more rallies this week. Uh, and as we've seen, no masks are required. There's no social distancing. Um, listen to what the Assistant Secretary for HHS, uh, Admiral Brett Giroir, told me uh, over the weekend. 
all the docs, all the public health experts, all of us are really unanimous that it's important to wear a mask when you cannot physically distance, avoid the indoor crowded spaces, wash your hands, and that's the way that we reduce the spread, slow the curve, flatten the curve, and, and reduce mortality. Is holding a massive rally, even if they're outdoors, as we approach this 200,000 person death toll, is this in any way acceptable to health, public health experts? Yes, yeah, so look, I think we all expect our president to follow the basic scientific guidelines, right? And we expected him to do it as a model for others, and we expect him to do it uh, to protect his own supporters. And the indoor rallies where people aren't wearing masks, outdoor gatherings where people are stationary and not wearing masks for extended periods of time, those are all really dangerous. And it has defied logic to me why the president would continue to put his own supporters uh, under such risk. The CDC just reversed its guidance twice in a week. On Friday, the agency issued guidance saying uh, that aerosols are a main way the virus spreads. It warned that indoor spaces are especially dangerous. But now, today, the CDC reverted, uh, CDC reverted back to its old guidance after the change was pointed out by CNN. A spokesperson saying, quote, a draft version of proposed changes to these recommendations was posted in error to the agency's official website. CDC is currently updating its recommendations regarding airborne transmissions of coronavirus. A federal official tells CNN the reversal was not the result of any political pressure. It was just published before it was ready to po- be posted. What do you make of all this? Yeah, Jake, it's incredibly confusing because, first of all, the science on this is clear. Airborne transmission is not only just a real thing. It is probably the main way that this virus is transmitted and that indoor spaces are dangerous, even beyond six feet. If you're in an indoor space and not wearing a mask, you can pick up the virus. So the science is actually not in debate. Uh, I was first relieved to see the CDC catching up to the science felt to me like maybe the CDC scientists are actually getting a chance to speak and are no longer being muzzled. And then this reversal today, it throws everything kind of out the window. I no longer understand what's going on. The science on this is not confusing. It's very clear. I know the CDC scientists know it. We just need to hear it from them. Is it dangerous to be indoors, uh, but you're wearing a mask the whole time? Is, is, is that dangerous? Uh, like, for instance, the people who are, who are trying school these days, but all the kids are wearing masks. I think what we know is that indoors with the mask is much, much safer. And then if you can open up windows, if you can just get some basic ventilation going, uh, most of the evidence we have is that that is very safe. I mean, nothing is 100%, but it's relatively low risk if you can be wearing masks and have reasonable ventilation in the room where you are. There have been studies showing that COVID can spread through small particles in the air, just like that CDC guidance had said. Should the CDC change its guidance back to what it had posted Friday that it took down today? Yeah, absolutely. Right. The, 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 again, there is a science on this is clear. The CDC scientists know this, by the way. It's not like we know this and they don't. Uh, the CDC scientists should be uh, able to speak and their guidance should reflect what we know in the scientific community, which is that aerosol and airborne transmission is a real thing. 28 states are seeing at least a 10% rise in cases over the last week. Is this the, a spike that maybe was anticipated because of, of Labor Day, or are we at another long-term surge beginning it? 
Yeah, it's hard to sort out for sure what's causing this. I think Labor Day probably is a part of the story here. You know, we did see cases declining going into Labor Day, but about four or five days after Labor Day, the cases sort of flattened and started going back up. That's pretty suggestive that there were a lot of infections over Labor Day that, you know, again, took five, seven days to start showing up in the numbers. Obviously, I hope it stops growing, but obviously what we're all worried about is that this is the beginning of a much longer spike. All right, Dr. Ashish Jha, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Back to our big story this hour. The Supreme Court vacancy. Democrats need just two more Republican senators to delay a confirmation vote until after the election. Who's on the watch list? That's next. We have some breaking news for you now. President Trump just spoke about the Supreme Court vacancy moments ago at the White House. Let's listen in. I would say on Friday or Saturday, I'll be announcing the pick. Uh, it's uh, five women are being looked at and vetted very carefully. Five. And uh, we'll make a decision probably Saturday, but Friday or Saturday. Do you, do you plan to meet with any of them in person? Do you plan to meet with any of them in person before you make your decision? Yeah, I will. When do you plan to do that? During this period of time. Do you think all five? I don't know. I doubt it. But in person. I doubt it. But we'll meet with a few, probably. Have you talked to any of them yet? Say it. Have you talked to any of them yet? I have. Today? I have. Today and yesterday, day before. Is it better to have a vote on your nominee before the election or after? Well, I'd much rather have a vote uh, before the election because there's a lot of work to be done, and I'd much rather have it. We have plenty of time to do it. I mean, there's really a lot of time. So uh, let's say I make the announcement on Saturday. There's a great deal of time before the election. That'll be up to Mitch in the Senate. But I'd certainly much rather have the vote. I think it sends a good signal. And it's uh, solidarity and lots of other things. And I'm just doing my constitutional obligation. I have an obligation to do this. Uh, So I would rather see it before the election. What would be... Well, we'll have to say, I would think that that would be very bad for them. Uh, I think their their voters, the people that voted them, put them there because of a certain ideology or a certain feel, and they don't want to have somebody do that. I think it's very bad if they do that. What would be your concern? All right, President Trump there saying that he has an obligation to fill the Supreme Court vacancy. He wants to do it before the election. The uh, announcement will come either Friday or Saturday, he says. One of the five women being vetted will be picked. Now all eyes are on Senators Chuck Grassley and Mitt Romney and Cory Gardner, who have not yet set, said if the Supreme Court confirmation process should be put on hold. It will take just two additional Republican senators to block any effort to confirm a justice before the presidential election, as CNN's Manu Raju reports. Our nation is mourning. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is pushing for a quick confirmation vote for President Trump's nominee with the election just 43 days away, despite taking the opposite position in 2016. President Trump's nominee for this vacancy will receive a vote on the floor of the Senate. When voters have not chosen divided government, when the American people have elected a Senate majority to work closely with the sitting president. Four years ago, McConnell and his party emphasized that it should be up to the voters to decide who gets to pick the next Supreme Court justice. 
after Justice Antonin Scalia died during a presidential election year. And that was eight months before the election. This decision ought to be made by the next um, president. McConnell and Trump can only afford to lose four Republican votes to get the nominee confirmed before or soon after the elections. And already two of them, Maine Susan Collins and Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, have called on a confirmation vote to wait until after November 3rd prompting Trump to attack the senators, including Collins, who is facing the most difficult re-election of her career. I think Susan Collins is very badly hurt by her statement yesterday. Your people aren't going to take this. There are several other Republicans who have not yet said how they will come down, including endangered Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado, who over the weekend would not reveal if he stood by his 2016 remarks when he said, the American people deserve a role in this process. Instead, Gardner sidestepped questions about the matter, and his office did not respond to an inquiry from CNN on Monday. There is time for debate. There is time for politics. But the time for now is to pray for the family. The focus is also on Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, who said this in 2016 when he refused, as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, to hold hearings on Obama nominee Merrick Garland. Let the people have a voice in this. And this July, when asked about a possible vacancy, he told CNN, If I were chairman of the committee, I couldn't move forward with it. He has yet to comment on if he stands by that position. And there's Utah Senator Mitt Romney, who has been mum so far. Well, good evening, everybody. And I'm but Republicans aren't the only ones taking the opposite approach. Back in 2016, Democrats demanded Obama's pick be confirmed in an election year. Every day that goes by without a ninth justice is another day the American people's business is not getting done. But now he's calling on Republicans to honor what they said in 2016. And to try and decide this at this last time, at this late moment, is despicable and wrong and against democracy. And Jake, behind the scenes, Republican senators are making their case to the White House. One of them, Josh Hawley of Missouri, is saying that his support will be contingent on a nominee who believes that Roe versus Wade is wrongly decided. And he told me just moments ago that Amy Coney Barrett, who's a leading contender for that position, he says that she would meet that standard. And Jake, I also just caught up with John Cornyn, a member of the Republican leadership team, and I asked him, would Republicans confirm a nominee in a lame duck session if President Trump loses in, a, in November? And he said to me, quote, of course. Jake. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. We now have some idea of the plans to honor the life and legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She will lie in repose outside the Supreme Court on Wednesday and Thursday. On Friday, she will lie in state at the U.S. Capitol, a rare honor for a justice. CNN's Jessica Schneider joins me from outside the Supreme Court. And Jessica, this is a change based on normal protocols because of coronavirus, right? It is, Jake. You know, typically the public is allowed inside the Great Hall as the justice lies in repose. But because of COVID, the public will only be allowed outside. So it will unfold like this. On Wednesday morning, there'll be a ceremony inside the court, but that will only be for family, close friends and justices. Then Justice Ginsburg's casket will be moved up to the portico at the top of the steps here, here at the Supreme Court. That's when there will be this public viewing until 10 p.m. both nights on Wednesday and Thursday. And in the meantime,
time, we're hearing about two top contenders for Justice Ginsburg's seat, Amy Coney Barrett and Barbara Lagoa. Now, conservative legal circles are really pushing for Amy Coney Barrett, really because she's a known entity. She was the runner-up to Brett Kavanaugh in 2018, and she's really gained some uh, somewhat of rock star status because of her response to Senator Dianne Feinstein when Senator Feinstein seemed to question her Catholic beliefs and how they play into her, her role as a judge. Coney Barrett has pushed back, saying that her religion does not play any role in her judicial opinions. But of course, Jake, conservatives are counting on Coney Barrett to be that vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. Then there's Barbara Lagoa. She's a Cuban-American judge in Florida, of course, a crucial battleground state. That could play well for the president politically if she was picked. However, Barbara Lagoa really hasn't had the extreme betting of vetting that Amy Coney Barrett has had. And Jake, on this tight timeline that we're on, that really could work against Barbara Lagoa here. Jake. It could, although President Trump really wants to win Florida and he really wants to win the Latino vote. So who knows? Uh, Jessica True. Schneider outside the court. Thank you so much. Democrats are hinting they will try to block President Trump's Supreme Court nominee. But what's realistic? I'll ask a senior Democratic member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. That's next. And we're back with our politics lead today with just 43 days until the presidential election. Democrats are looking for a way to block President Trump's eventual nominee to the Supreme Court, slamming Republicans as hypocrites for stopping President Obama's choice for the bench eight months before the 2016 election. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont. He's a member and former chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Senator, thanks so much for joining us. So Democrats need four Republican senators to join with you to block a vote in the Senate uh, on uh, any nominee. Uh, Right now, Senators Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins uh, have suggested that they think the vote should take place after there's a new president or a re-election of the current president. Uh, Have you spoken to any other Republicans who might join them and you? uh, And and if so, who? Well, I've talked with some, and I'll leave it private if they want to talk about it, but some who made it very clear that uh, Mitch McConnell was right in blocking uh, Barack Obama uh, hundreds of days before the election for his consensus uh, nominee. And I say, now, now you're talking about somebody who would be just a matter of days and they'll try to ram through. I'm hoping they will stick to what they said back then. Uh, this whole thing uh, is so weird and, and beneath what our country should stand for. Look at what happened. Justice Ginsburg, who has accomplished more in her life than anybody here in the Senate, and certainly more than uh, Donald Trump has accomplished, within minutes of her dying, Mitch McConnell goes out and says, I'm going to ram through, and words that effect, ram through whoever Donald Trump tells me to ram through the Senate. President, tradition, everything else, throw it out the wall. And that goes beyond political. The lasting effect means we're going to so politicize the Supreme Court that nobody will feel they can look at the court and think it's going to be impartial. That is going to cause more damage than anybody possibly could. If you are not able to get two more Republicans to join with you and Collins and Murkowski, uh, will Senate Democrats take any other actions to try to prevent this vote from happening? I've heard a lot of different ideas being bandied about 
uh, by Democratic lawmakers. Well, I'm, I'm the dean of the Senate. I've been here the longest. I can't think of anything we could do if, if they're willing to break rules, if they're willing to break precedent, and if they're willing to uh, just go back on their word and say, in effect, oh, yeah, we lied when it was Obama, there's very little you can do. I mean, I came here at a time when you assumed senators would keep their word. The senators would actually believe, let's do what's best for the country. Uh, this is not only something that's going to harm, or even if they came up with the best candidate in the world, doing it in this political fashion will harm the Supreme Court for decades to come. And it certainly so demeans what the U.S. Senate should be. The Senate should be the conscience of the nation. I've never seen a conscience be handled in such a flim-flam fashion. Your colleague, Senator Markey, uh, said on Twitter, quote, we must make it absolutely clear that if McConnell attempts to fill this seat, we will abolish the filibuster and expand the court when we retake the Senate, unquote. Uh, are you on board? Uh, I mean, to be frank, well, one of the reasons that we're here, let me, just, let me just finish if I could. So one of the reasons we, we're here now is because Democrats changed the 60 vote threshold back when Democrats had control. It's not the only reason, no. but it's one of the reasons. No, we did not change it for the Supreme Court. No, I know, but you changed it's it for other judges. I know, but you changed it for, for non-Supreme Court uh, judges. We, we, yeah, but we didn't change it for the Supreme Court. And because everybody felt the Supreme Court should be handled in a way with, with a, uh, somebody can get votes from both Democrats or Republicans so that you have some faith in the Supreme Court. And uh, Mitch McConnell came in. And incidentally, what Mitch McConnell wanted at that time, the second he got in the majority, he just threw that out. He had a Republican president. We did the unprecedented thing of blocking Merrick Garland when Barack Obama nominated him, saying that we don't have confirmations of a uh, <clears throat> of a, a justice in an election year, and of course we have many, many times, certainly since I've been here. Uh, the last times with a Republican president, a Democratic-controlled Senate, and we passed the person almost unanimously. This, this is going to so, I mean, we could talk about, oh, here's what we'll do if we get back in the majority. We're not in the majority. And uh, they are relying on the fact that they're in the majority that they are saying, we have no responsibility to uh, Americans who don't believe exactly the way we, we do. Uh, we do not want a Senate that can reflect all Americans. We want a Senate that will only reflect what Donald Trump orders it to do. Uh, in all my years here, I've never seen any Republican leader or Democratic leader act that way. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, yesterday would not rule out the idea that's been floated by some liberal activists, pro progressive activists, uh, to impeach Attorney General Bill Barr or President Trump again which would theoretically force the Senate into a trial situation, delaying a confirmation vote on the Supreme Court nominee. What do you make of that idea? Well, I, I can't speak for the, uh, what the House might do. I, I am terribly disappointed with Attorney General Barr when he uh, takes orders from the White House when he's trying to drop 
cases against people who have admitted to felons, felonies, but because they're friends of the president, he tries to get the, uh, uh, the cases dropped. I've never seen anything like this. Or even taking a legitimate case brought against the uh, president of the United States and moving to have it go into a federal court and have the taxpayers pay for the president's defense. Uh, I'd like somebody to go back in history and tell me any time any attorney general has shown such craven uh, obeisance to the president of the United States. Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you, Jay. With 43 days left until the election, the Trump campaign is way ahead in one key area that could make a big difference. That's next. In the 2020 lead, Joe Biden has a huge cash advantage over President Trump, a $141 million edge, according to campaign filings. But in the ground game, Biden may be falling behind. The Trump campaign says its volunteers are knocking on more than 3 million doors in 17 competitive states. CNN's Kyung Law went to Nevada, where Democratic activists worry that a lack of face-to-face interaction could hurt the Democratic nominee. From a bustling Trump campaign field office in Las Vegas, where phone banking is in full effect, vote in person or by mail, to the door-to-door campaigning in the suburbs. How are you doing? My name's Candy. I'm a volunteer with the Republican Party. For Team Trump in Nevada, it's the in-person race to Election Day. Who would you likely support for the president? Email's okay to persuade voters. Phone call's a little bit better, but nothing beats face-to-face. That's political reality, says the Trump campaign in Nevada, even with the pandemic. With masks and social distancing at the door, Trump campaign volunteers have been doing this since June. Hillary Clinton will carry the state of Nevada. The president lost Nevada in 2016 by about two and a half points. In 2020, he's campaigned here in person, holding a large indoor rally, a violation of the state's coronavirus guidelines. The state party says it has more staffers in state now than 2016. When you're out there knocking, you don't see the other side like you would in years past. You couldn't get away from them back then. That's true, says Democratic activist Annette Magnus with Battleborn Progress. We are not playing by the same rules. as the, ru- the Republicans don't have rules. I think that's the biggest thing. This general election. Magnus has moved her campaigning for Democrats completely online because of COVID. The Biden campaign remains almost completely virtual in Nevada, with the exception of an in-person visit by running mate Kamala Harris. Outside of Nevada, some down-ballot Democrats like Senate candidate Sarah Gideon in Maine and Steve Bullock in Montana have taken a different strategy, asking volunteers to help knock on voters' doors. Back in Nevada, a few outside groups are just now starting to move in person. Can I get you registered to vote? Among them, Faith Organizing Alliance, which targets voter registration among people of color. As far as the in-person stuff, though, you guys didn't operate for a good portion of the year for a good what six months nothing no paper registration but the only democratic group canvassing in person this year is the culinary union nevada's largest democratic get out the vote machine here's a flyer with more information 200 members have been knocking on doors since august they do so cautiously we carry masks with us. We have these little tongs to hand them, so we're not handing them directly with our hands. Before we start speaking, would you mind putting a mask on? I sat back several feet to give myself distance from them. Do you have any questions or concerns? Magnus warns given COVID's impact on ground game and funding, she worries about Nevada in November. I fear if we are not careful, 
and we don't do everything we can, 2016 could happen here like it did in Wisconsin and Michigan. And that's why I've been sounding the alarm. A little perspective on what you're seeing from the Culinary Union as they're going door to door. Some 400, more than 400 of them have been hospitalized, union members and family, because of the virus. 49 of them have died. Jake, despite those numbers, they say they're going to take those precautions and continue knocking door to door. Jake. And Kyung, Nevada is usually very competitive. Um, What's the state of the race in Nevada right now uh, between Biden and Trump? Yeah, despite how it's gone the last couple of cycles, if you look at the latest New York Times Siena College poll, and this is a poll taken before the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Joe Biden is at 46%. Donald Trump is at 42%. Given the margin of error, there is no clear leader in Nevada. Jake? Neither candidate in the high 40s or 50, which is where they need to be to, to have a win. Kyung La, thank you so much. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.